could please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. This is our last sermon in Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 66. We're going to be looking at the first four verses, verses 1 through 4. And the book of Isaiah started back in chapter 1 with a problem. And the problem was God's people forgotten God. They've forgotten their special calling to be a people set apart, a people called to be different than their pagan neighbors, people called to be holy as their God is holy. And what happened is they became just like everyone else, just like their neighbors. They were following worthless idols. They, they rebelled against God, and they did all kinds of evil and, and wicked acts in his sight. And throughout the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, we see God calling his people back to himself, calling them to trust in him, promising protection, promising safety, safety from their enemies in him. But during this time, the people continue to rebel, continue to trust not in God, but trust in themselves, in their own cunning, and the allegiances that they had set up with pagan nations. And we know in biblical history, God's patience eventually runs out on these rebellious people. And he sends Babylon, wicked, godless, pagan Babylon, the epitome of everything opposed to God. He sends Babylon to conquer his people, to remove them from the promised land, the land that was given to them directly by God himself. And the second half of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, it fast forwards. It fast forwards 150 years. And it's addressed not to the people of Isaiah's day, but it's addressed to those people who are suffering in exile. And the second part is a, a, a message of hope, a message of comfort. Chapter 40 actually starts with these words. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. And what Isaiah is doing is he's telling them of the end of the exile. In chapters 44 and 45, Isaiah actually names by name, names by name, 150 years before it actually happens. Isaiah names the Persian ruler, Cyrus, who would release the exiles and allow them to return to the promised land. But this isn't the end of their problem. Even when released from exile, God's people still face the the same temptations to rebel. Rebel against God and and trust again, not in God, but trust in themselves for their safety and security. And throughout the entire book, throughout the entire book of Isaiah, Isaiah is revealing the ultimate hope. He is revealing to them the ultimate answer, the answer to where the problem lies. And Isaiah gives glimpses of this hope in every chapter. And we see this hope for the first time in in, in chapter 1 with a promise. In chapter 1, verse 18, is a promise that says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And this promise is further fleshed out as we go through the chapters of Isaiah. And we see that this promise is a person. In chapter 7, the person is revealed actually in a sign, in the sign of Emmanuel, God with us. And the sign is that the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child and call his name Emmanuel. And then we're told even more in chapter 11. We're told that this person will, will come from the line of King David and that he will usher in a time of peace. And Isaiah shows us many, many facets of this anointed one, many facets of this Messiah, this one who is, will be the ultimate hope of God's people. And he is a mighty king. And he is a mighty warrior like King David. But he's also a servant. He's also a suffering servant. A suffering servant who will give his life for his people to make an atonement for his people. We're told that that he bore our griefs. 
that he carried our sorrows, that he was pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities. And we're told that by his chastisement, his chastisement brought us peace. By his, he, by his wounds, we are healed. And throughout this book of Isaiah, throughout the, these 29 sermons, throughout these several weeks, we have seen Christ. Isaiah speaks so oftenly and so clearly about Christ that this book has been called the fifth gospel. And last week we looked at the, the first two verses of chapter 61. And we, then we compared and looked at the way that, that Jesus applied these verses to himself in Luke 4. And what we saw is that Jesus, the one Messiah, had two different missions. Two different missions at two different times. His first mission and his first coming was to save his people. He came as a savior. And through his death and through his atoning sacrifice, he saved his people from their sins. And his second coming, his second coming, he's not going to come as savior. He's going to come as judge. And he will judge all who continue to rebel against God, all who refuse his gracious offer of salvation. And this morning, we're looking at one final warning, one final warning given by Isaiah. Another temptation the people will fall in after their return from exile. Now, it looks different from the problem that we saw in the first 39 chapters of the book, but it's just as deadly. It's, it's, it's just as dangerous. It's, it's just simply a different expression, really, of the same rebellion against God. See, this was the primary expression of this rebellion after the exile. It was the primary expression encountered by Jesus during his first coming. And really, this is the primary danger facing us in the church today and in the conservative, evangelical church today, the Bible-believing church today. See, the other expression of this rebellion that we've looked at, we've been looking at for months in Isaiah, this is compromise. This is wanting to be like the pagan culture. And I think this is the biggest danger of of the secular culture, of the the cultural Christian. But what we're going to look at today, I think this is the danger for us. It's a temptation for the conservative, for the Bible-believing church. And this danger is a dead, lifeless, hypocritical, legalistic, technically orthodox, so-called faith. And this so-called faith is devoid of any supernatural power, any supernatural transformation from the Holy Spirit. And this is what we're going to look at in this final sermon in the series of Isaiah. So we're going to be looking at the first four verses in Isaiah 66. Hear now the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so these things came to me, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that which I did not delight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I need you. I need your spirit. Lord, I pray that you will be with me, that you will speak through me. Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes to hear from you. Lord, this is a message that we each need to hear. Each of us, each of us 
struggles in this area. Struggles to appear to be something on the outside that we are not on the inside. Father, you know what we are and open our eyes to this truth and help us to look to you to remain faithful to you and to be what we profess to be. Father, we pray that we will hear from you and you will be glorified. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, during the time of Jesus' ministry in the first century, there were three major sects of Judaism. There were the Essenes, there were the Sadducees, and there were the Pharisees. And you got to remember, this is a time when the prophets had been silent. They had been silent for 400 years. With, the, with Malachi, that was the last time God had spoken to his people. Not until the coming of John the Baptist. And during these 400 years, these sects had, had strayed mightily. They had, they had went far from the biblical teaching of Moses and the prophets. Well, the first of these sects were the Essenes. And you may not have heard of the Essenes. The Essenes are not mentioned in the New Testament. We actually know about them from Josephus. We know about them from, from other historical documents. We know about them from the Dead Sea Scrolls that were, were discovered in the mid-20th century. These were documents actually from the Essenes. Now, the Essenes, they, they were radical. They, 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 were, they were separatists. They, they were the type of people. They went off and lived by themselves in the mountain. They separated from the larger society. And they were focused on purity, radical focus on purity. They actually practiced water baptisms frequently, ceremonial cleansings that represented their being cleansed from their sins and the, and the purification. And some scholars actually believe that John the Baptist may have been an Essene because of his description of coming out of the wilderness and, and his clothing and his obvious emphasis on baptism. Now, from a Christian perspective, the, the Essenes would be roughly analogous maybe to the, the Anabaptist tradition or the radical reformers or, or even modern-day separatist groups such as the Amish that want to have nothing to do with society. They go off and, and be on themselves to be pure. So this is the first group. The second group that was common during this time, during Jesus' ministry, are the Sadducees. Now, we, we've heard of the Sadducees. The Sadducees are, are mentioned during Scripture. And during Jesus' time, the Sadducees, they were the party of the high priest. They were involved in the temple worship. Now, these were the aristocrats. These were, they, they were a small group, but they were politically powerful. They were, they, now, they, they focused on the politics, but theologically, they, they were very, very weak. There wasn't much theological substance to the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in angels or demons. They pretty much believed what they could see now. They believed in the power that they had. They rejected the oral traditions they were held by the Pharisees, and they, they only thought that the, the, the written law was binding. But even this, they were given lip service to. Again, they really just focused on themselves. Now, from a Christian perspective, you, the modern-day equivalent of the Sadducees would be the mainline Protestant liberals, the ones who are politically powerful but theologically empty. The third group was the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees separated from the, from the Sadducees early on. And, and where the Sadducees focused mainly on the political, the, the, the Pharisees focused on the theological. The Pharisees were more spiritually focused than the Sadducees. They were the most theological. They were the most pious of the three groups. And unlike the Sadducees, they did believe in the resurrection. They did believe in afterlife. They did believe in angels. They believed in demons. They had a high view of Scripture. Of these three groups, the Pharisees are the group that is most similar to us to modern-day conservative evangelicals. Now, they did give equal weight to the, the moral law, the, 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 um, the, the oral law, the tradition. So in some sense, they were, they were kind of like modern-day conservative Roman Catholics. But either way, they were very much like us. They were very much like modern-day conservative Bible-believing Christians. But here's the scary part. 
Here's the scary part. I mean, you heard, you heard what Mike just read. Of all the different groups mentioned in the Bible, not just these three religious groups, but all the groups, the Romans, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, the Gentiles, it's the Pharisees. It's the Pharisees that received the most scathing rebuke of Jesus. Right, what Mike just read for us. Woe to you, scribes and hypocrites. There's a whole chapter. I only, I only selected five verses, but there's about 30 verses that are saying the same. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. So Jesus' reaction to, of all the groups in the first century Palestine, those who are the most like us, this should get our attention. This should get our attention. And it's very important that we understand what this rebuke is. We don't want to hear, woe to you, Northgate. Woe to you, PCA. Woe to you, Southern Baptists. We do not want to hear that. We don't want to hear that. No one wants to be called a hypocrite by Jesus. So Isaiah, in this last chapter of his book, he gives a warning. And I think if this warning was heeded during Jesus' days, it would have prevented the rebuke that Jesus leveled at the Pharisees. But it's a warning that also needs to be heeded by us today, 21st century conservative evangelical church in America, including the PCA, including us here at Northgate. See, it's easy for us, too, to become hypocrites. My friends, this is dangerous. This is deadly. See, the devil doesn't care what he uses to separate us from God. He can use paganism. He can use secularism. He can use false religion. And he can use hypocritical followers of the true God, of true religion. Those who, at least on paper, profess orthodox theology. And this is the greatest danger that we face. This is the greatest danger that we face here at Northgate. This is the greatest danger we face in the PCA. This is the greatest danger that conservative Bible-believing Christians face this hypocrisy. See, my friends, we have the truth in Scripture. We have the truth in our confessions. We have the truth in our creeds. I love the confessions. I love the creeds. But the question is, do we believe them? Do we live as if they're true? Not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. Do we believe them to be true? And is this truth, is this truth the bedrock of our worldview? Is this the bedrock of the way we understand reality? Or do we just give it lift service? Do we just give it lift service? And again, as born-again believers, if we are born again, we have access to the throne room of grace. We are united to Jesus Christ. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. But do we truly know it? Do we truly recognize this? Do we have this personal and individual relationship with him? Is Christ the very foundation and the center of our lives? Or is it something else? And it could even be good things. It could even be something religious. It could even be something associated with God, associated with church. But is it Christ? See, the problem is that the hypocrite sees the external trappings of his religion. He sees them as the essence of his faith. Not God himself. The external trappings are the essence. See, their trust, their confidence, their pride is not in God. It is in these trappings. It is in their religious pedigree. And they look down at anyone who doesn't have the same religious pedigree or the status with respect to these external trappings. And the specific temptation that we see here in Isaiah, the Isaiah list, and it's so dangerous for the returning exiles, is that they were placing their trust in the fact that they had the temple. So they were coming, they, they were the people of the temple. They had the sacrificial system, and they were placing their trust in this system. Now, the temple is a good thing. It's a, it's, it's a blessing. that The temple was the place where, where the almighty, sovereign God of the universe met with his people. This is where God's presence was, was manifested in a special and a powerful way. 
This is where he was worshipped by his people. This is a good thing. This is where atonement could be made for the sins of his people. And the sacrificial system that they had, this was good. This was essential. This was essential for, for, for God's sinful people to actually have communion with him, to, have their, to be made right with God, to have their sins atoned for, to be able to come into his holy presence. These were good things. But my friends, these things were a means to an end. They were a means to the end. See, the temple sacrifices and, and all the rituals, they pointed beyond themselves. They pointed to Christ. They pointed to the ultimate, the once and for all solution to our sin problem. They pointed to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the hypocrites totally missed this reality. See, their focus was on the external. Their focus was on the ritual. They were completely unconcerned with the essence. They were completely unconcerned with the, with the true significance of the rituals they were doing. They were just going through the motions. They were blind to the, to the meaning of these, uh, these religious services. They, they were simply empty actions of a hypocrite. And Isaiah addresses these hypocrites and their pride in the temple in verses 1 and 2. He says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. See, Isaiah here is, is, is quoting the Lord himself. Thus says the Lord, and the Lord God, Yahweh, is saying, he's not bound by the temple. He says, heaven is his throne, earth is his footstools. Basically, everything is made by him. All things belong to him. And this is the reality to which the temple points, the reality that they were missing. He asked, what is the house that is the temple? What is that you had built for me? And what is the place of my rest? Now, the Lord is not minimizing the temple. We have to understand this. We have to look at all of Scripture. And in fact, through the prophet Haggai, Haggai rebukes the returning exile. Remember why he rebukes? Because they were building fancy paneled houses while the Lord's house laid in ruin. And in fact, it was neglect of, the God's, of God's house, which by implication is neglect of God himself, which led to the judgment that Haggai describes. Haggai says to the people, the people who are building these fancy houses for themselves and neglecting God's house, he says, you sowed much, but you harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, and you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. And why? Why? The Lord tells them, it's because of my house. My house lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. See, now Haggai, in Haggai, this neglect of the temple, it was not about the temple itself. It was showing, it was symbolizing a neglect of God himself. It wasn't about the temple. It was much bigger than the temple. See, the, the, the hypocrite here focuses on the temple, but still neglects God. He thinks that if he superficially checks all the right boxes with respect to the temple, then somehow he's serving God. Let me try to give, it, give a, a simple illustration of this. Think about a wedding anniversary. Why isn't a wedding anniversary important? It's, it's just a day, right? It's important because the anniversary symbolizes the marriage. If you forget the, the wedding anniversary, it's showing that you neglect. If you don't care enough to remember your wedding anniversary, what do you think of your marriage? Now, what about a person who, who treats his wife terribly, cheats on his wife, but buys her a nice gift on her anniversary or takes her out to dinner on her anniversary? Is that the right thing? No, you can't. The, the hypocrite, again, shows the, the superficial concern for the symbol. The symbol is the anniversary by neglecting the reality. And this is what we're seeing here. This is the warning given in this last chapter of Isaiah. 
Moving on, verse 3 goes from the temple to the sacrificial system. Again, this system is critically important to God's people. This is the way that they're made right with God. This is essential. This is the way that they can atone for their sins. This is a big deal. This is something that people should rightly focus on. But the question is, is the Lord delighted? Is the Lord delighted in their outward performance of these sacrificial, these, these duties? <clears throat> Look at verse 3. The Lord, and this is mocking. Look at it, he's mocking. And he says, he who slaughters an ox, a good thing. This is a sacrifice, what they're commanded to do. It's like one who kills a man. Whoa, that's a violation of the command. What's he talking about that? He who sacrificed a lamb, like one who breaks a dog's neck. What? What is he talking about? And in case, in case you don't understand, he who presents a grain offering, like one who offers pig's blood, that was profane. That would, that would have been disgusting. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. And he says, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. See, what they're doing is they're going through the motions. They're doing hourly what is the right thing, but the Lord says they're not doing what he wants. They're doing what they want rather than what he wants. And yet, at the end of the verse, he says, they have chosen their own ways. That's not his ways, but their own ways. And their soul delights in their abominations. The Lord is calling what they do. They think they're going through the thing, doing what's going to please the Lord. He's calling it an abomination. See, going through the motions just does not cut it. See, they think they're they're doing what is required of them. They think what they're doing is pleasing the Lord. They think, you know, know, God's pretty lucky. I'm I'm such a, a great guy. Look how awesome I am. Look at how great I'm doing these sacrifices. And they don't realize that their hypocritical and and faithless actions actually disgusts the Lord. Disgusts the Lord. See, and not only does it fail, not fail to please the Lord, but it will also bring about his wrath. Take a look at verse 4. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. See, they think they're doing what's necessary to be on God's good side. They, they, they think they have fire insurance, right? You know, you know what fire insurance is? Fire insurance is the person who's just religious enough to keep himself out of hell. That's all. He doesn't want to do any more. He's doing the bare minimum, but his heart's not in it. Don't you understand? That is not what Christianity is. It's not the bare minimum. If you want to do the bare minimum, you've got to question, am I really a Christian? Am I really a Christian if your heart's not in it? And you know what? Those who are doing the, the bare minimum, those who are, who are looking for fire insurance, they're going to be sorely disappointed. See, because their feeble, heartless efforts will have no value. The Lord will choose harsh treatment for them. They will suffer his wrath. He will, he will bring their fears upon them. And their fears could be damnation. They will find out that their fire insurance was useless. The next line in this verse shows exactly what the problem is. And just in case you're reading it, you think I'm reading into this text, the next part tells us explicitly why they face the Lord's wrath. It says, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. So they were not interested in the Lord. He called to them. And how did he call to them? He called to them by the prophets. He called to them by his word. And what did they do? They ignored his word. They were bored. See, the Lord was not silent. He spoke to him. He's always spoken to him. But they just chose not to listen. They were not interested in doing his will. They sought to do their own will. As the verse continues, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. See, they thought they were doing what the Lord required. But they had no interest in the Lord himself. Again, they were going through the motions. They were doing what they wanted. They were hypocrites. My friends, we need to ask ourselves, are we going through the motions? 
Are we just, just checking those religious boxes? Or do we really believe what we claim? Now, thankfully, thankfully this passage doesn't end here. Thankfully, this passage is not simply a, a condemnation of the hypocrite. Thankfully, it also shows us the one in whom the Lord delights. This passage shows us the true believer, shows us the opposite of the hypocrite. And take a look at the second part of verse 2. These are the words of the Lord. It says, but this is the one to whom I look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. See, the Lord is saying, this is the one to whom I look. This is the one in whom I am pleased. This is the one who brings me joy. This is the one who's not a hypocrite. Rather, this is the sincere lover of God. And what we see here is a contrast. See, the hypocrite doesn't listen to God, but chooses his own way. He does his own thing. The hypocrite refuses to yield to God's will, but chooses his own way of doing things, doing what is evil in God's sight. The hypocrite loves what is an abomination to God. But notice the contrast. The one who is accepted is humble. This means he doesn't pursue his own agenda, but rather he pursues God's agenda. He defers to God. The humble man yields to God. See, the earnest desire of the humble man is not himself. The earnest desire is God. And humility is so important. It's so important because what humility does is it opens us up to God's grace. See, humility is really the, the, the antidote to the, the greatest obstacle to grace. And the greatest obstacle to grace is ourselves. It's self. It's our self-sufficiency. It's our desire to push ourselves, push our own agenda, make a name for ourselves. And this is our primary and our most basic sin. It's the root of all sin. It's our desire to be God. It's our pride. And this is, this is a diabolical sin. This is the diabolical sin of the devil himself. And this is the, that, that fatal pathogen that, w- that was released by the, the wily serpent into the garden, plunging our race into the horrors of the fall. But my friends, humility. Humility is the antidote. See, where pride is demonic, humility, humility is divine. And this humility is modeled by none other than the Son of God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself. And he became obedient. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross. That is what we see. That is what humility looks like. But humility is not the only trait we see in the one accepted by God. There are two other characteristics seen in this verse. And these two are just as important. And the second an equally important characteristic that we see here. So we see the one who is humble and contrite in spirit. Contrite in spirit. What does this mean? Well, to be contrite in spirit means that we are remorseful. It means that we recognize our sin. It means that we are repentant. See, it means that we are acceptable to God. In order to be acceptable to God, we must recognize our sin and we must repent of our sin. See, there's no contrition in the hypocrite. See, the hypocrite, the hypocrite's proud. The hypocrite feels that he has earned God's favor. He feels that God is pleased to have someone as, as, as pious as me on his team. See, that God is lucky to have someone as amazing as me. And the hypocrite is, is, is the Pharisee, and the contrite is the, is, is the, is the tax collector that we see in Jesus' parable. In Luke 18. You, you remember the parable. It says two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a, a tax collector. 
And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all I get. What did the tax collector do? The tax collector, standing off by himself, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And what's Jesus say? He, tells you, he says, I tell you, that man, that tax collector went home justified, not the other man. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the one who is accepted by God is the one who is not a hypocrite, but who is humble, has a contrite spirit. And here's the last part of the description from this verse. It says, he trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. And this is, the one who is accepted by God trembles at God's word. And this is not a blind and ignorant and irrational fear. This is not a terror experienced by by the wicked when they face God's righteous judgment. Rather, this is a healthy, a reverent, a holy fear. It is a righteous trembling that is proper. Proper for a created being when we come into the presence of, of our holy creator. And this is a type of trembling that Isaiah himself, right? Isaiah himself relates to us in the sixth chapter. Right? Remember he saw the, the Lord high and lifted up on his throne and he saw the, 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 the train of his robe filling the temple. And he saw that he was being served night and day by, the, by the, the seraphim and they cried out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you remember what Isaiah's reaction to this vision was? Isaiah was trembling. Isaiah said, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips, and I'm surrounded by a nation of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, have seen the Lord of hosts. Because this is the proper reaction. This is the proper reaction of anyone who comes into the presence of the Lord. It is fear and trembling. But notice that's not exactly what this last part of the verse is saying. It's not saying that the one who is accepted by the Lord is the one who trembles in his presence. No, because that would be every last creature. Satan himself and the demonic host will tremble in God's presence. That is just a natural way we were made. No, that's not what it says. This is one who is accepted by the Lord, trembles at my word. See, here's the key difference. And this shows the clear contrast between the hypocrite and the one accepted by God. See, the one accepted by God trembles at God's word, trembles at God's holy word revealed in holy scripture. He trembles where the hypocrite does not. Because the one accepted recognized scripture for what it is. It is the very inerrant word of the living God. It is sacred. It proceeds from the very mouth of God himself. So taken together, these three characteristics, what they do is they paint for us a picture. They paint for a picture, us a picture of the one who is acceptable for God, by God. So he is humble. That means he is open to God's grace. He, he trusts God and, and not into himself. He is contrite in spirit. That, that is, he's repentant. Uh, he, he despairs of his own righteousness. He knows that in and of himself, he deserves only God's wrath. And lastly, he trembles at God's word. So he looks not to himself. He looks to God. He looks to, to Jesus Christ. And where does he find out about Christ? He finds out about Christ in God's word. He encounters Christ in Scripture. So putting these all together, the one who is acceptable to God is the one who does not trust in himself, but is fully relying upon grace alone, received simply by faith alone, and nothing other than the merits, in the, in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. 
And this is revealed to him, not by his own intellect, not by the world, but solely by the testimony of Holy Scripture alone. And the ultimate purpose of this process is not us. It's not about us. The purpose is God. God's beautiful and magnificent glory alone. That is the purpose of all of it. So here's the bottom line difference between the hypocrite and the one accepted by God. The hypocrite's unconverted. The hypocrite's in the flesh. But the one who can please God is the one who is born again. The one who is a new creation in Christ. The one who is united to Christ by faith. It is only by the power of God that we are enabled to have this type of faith, this type of humility, this type of contrite spirit, this trembling of heart. It all comes from Christ. It is all of him. And my friends, the only hope for the hypocrite, the only hope for the hypocrite is Christ. And we must despair of our own righteousness and put on Christ's righteousness. We must receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone. Not, not on a Christ of our vain imaginations, not of Christ of the, of the new age, not of the Christ of the, the liberal who is just all love and acceptance, but the Christ that is found in Scripture as he is offered in the gospel. This is the true Christ. This is the only Christ who can save. And my friends, is there any hero not in Christ? If there are any here who are not in Christ, you are a hypocrite. It doesn't matter if you are religious or an atheist. If you are not in Christ, you are a hypocrite. And if there is anyone here, anyone on the live stream, anyone who could hear my voice, your only application of this sermon and every other biblical sermon preached, every other Christian sermon preached, is to come to Christ. And Scripture promises, Scripture promises, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, I know the vast majority here. The vast majority know the Lord. The vast majority, we are united to Christ by faith. But the question is, can we too be hypocrites? You know, who are born again, can we be hypocrites? And the sad answer is yes. Yes, we can. Each one of us, even the born-again believer, each one of us is, is susceptible to focusing on the outward trappings of Christianity and forgetting the essence forgetting Christ. And when we do this, you know what? We act no different than the unbeliever. Our we look no different than the unbeliever. So what's our hope? What's our answer for our belief as a believer? What's our answer? What is our application of this text? Well, it's the same. It's the same. It is Christ. It is to call upon Christ. It is to trust in Christ. Trust that Christ is enough. It's to cry out to Christ. It, it is to beg him to give us his mind, give us his humility to renew in us a, a humble and a contrite spirit, to cause us, to cause us to tremble, tremble again at his word, and to free us, to free us from this, this supernatural this, or this superficial hypocrisy that we have. And my friends, this is a prayer that he will answer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I admit I am a hypocrite. We admit that we are all hypocrites. We admit that each one of us each one of us on our own want nothing to do with you. Each one of us wants to look at the, the external, wants to, wants to be well thought of. And I'm speaking of myself as much as anyone else. And I pray, Father, that you will change us, that you will change our hearts, that we will look to Christ and that we will have the humble, contrite spirit and we will tremble at your word. And I pray, Father, if there are any here, any who can hear my voice, who do not know you, who do not have that, that you will change it now, that your Holy Spirit will invade them, change them, not just to go about and, 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 and check boxes. That's not what the Christian life is. This Christian life is to be all for you. 
And I pray, again, if any here do not have that faith, that you will change that at this very moment for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.